quick buck artists come and go with every bull market, but the steady players make it through the bear market. One half down, another one to go. Down on one knee, we've taken some blows. To the body, to the head, to the chest, to the face. Bears ran those bulls right out of this place. That's the worst start to a year since 1970. That's the year I was born. No time for levity when our portfolios are looking like Leon Spinks. After a few rounds with Ali and everything sinking faster than Usain Bolt, we're tempted to sell, cash in, revolt, blow up our plans. That's all she wrote. Put it in the mattress. Leave a little note. This market's too hot. We can't cope. Yo, stop the train. Let those people out. These tracks are for winners. Open the window and shout. Bull markets, bear markets, everything in between. We're long-term investors. We're tougher than we seem. We get up when knocked down. We fight on. We progress. We ride through this together on the Investopedia Express. You know the score, and it's not pretty. The S&P 500 finished its worst first six months of a calendar year since 1970, falling 20%. The U.S. bond market fell 10.4% and is on pace for its worst year in history. It sounds extreme, because it is, and it's pretty peculiar. Usually when stocks are having a bad year, bond prices rise and cushion the blow. That's been the pattern in the past eight corrections or bear markets for stocks, hence the once-upon-a-time wisdom of the 60-40 portfolio. But so far in 2022, both stocks and bonds have been tumbling down the hill together, and the 60-40 portfolio is having its worst year on record. That's tough for older investors who've been playing by the old rules of shifting their portfolios more towards bonds for capital preservation. It's been no easier and actually a little harder for younger investors who are tilted so aggressively towards stocks, especially growth stocks. The average stock in the NASDAQ 100, which are basically all growth stocks, or were once upon a time, is down more than 40% from its all-time high. 40% of stocks in the S&P 500 are at or near 52-week lows. That's extreme selling, effectively wiping out years of gains. U.S. stocks did rally nicely last Friday to kick off the second half of the year, but before we get all bullish again, let's get some perspective on bear markets and how fearsome they can be. The S&P 500 is down about 20% so far this year. That's the total return, including dividends. The worst calendar years for the index, however, were much worse. In 1931, the market fell 43.8%. That was the Great Depression. The Great Financial Crisis in 2008, the market fell 37%. In 1937, it fell 35.3%, and in 1974, it fell 26%. Do any of those eras seem similar to what we're experiencing today? Rampant inflation? Sounds like the 1970s, but U.S. consumers were in far worse shape back then. Rising interest rates? Those were more of an early 80s thing used by the Fed to bring down inflation. Geopolitical uncertainty? Every era had that, including the 1930s and the 1970s, but that wasn't what sent the stock market into a tailspin. Taking a long-term perspective, though, on the stock market eases the pain a little bit. The S&P 500 has delivered a better than 10% average annual return going back 5, 10, and 15 years. This era, though, still is kind of unique, and it may actually be more similar to the 1940s in the United States. Mike Wilson, the chief investment strategist at Morgan Stanley and our guest this week on The Express, will explain why a little bit later in the show. 2022 has belonged to the commodities, which as a group are up more than 45% year-to-date and on pace for their best year since 1946. Oil and natural gas prices have had a lot to do with that, up 46%, and Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine, now in its sixth month, has had a lot to do with that. The U.S. dollar is up nearly 10% against other major currencies, but beyond commodities, oil and gas stocks, and the dollar, returns for U.S. investors have been hard to find. Government bonds are down 15.4%, investment-grade bonds and high-yield bonds are down around 16%, and Bitcoin is down around 58%. What a reversal. Here are the top five best and worst performing U.S. stocks so far this year. No surprises among the winners. Occidental Petroleum up 104% this year. Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway went long on Oxy this year. Hess Corp 
Number two, up 48.7%. Valero Energy up 47.8%. ExxonMobil, 47%. And Katerra Energy up 46%. That's a natural gas company out of Houston, Texas. I had to look that one up. The five worst performers? How about Netflix down 70% so far this year? But that stock is up more than 6,200% in the past 15 years. It's all perspective. Shares of Etsy down 65% this year. That was one of the best performing stocks from 2016 to 2020. Align Technology shares are down 63%. That's the company behind the Visalign smile fixing technology, sadly. Shares of PayPal, they're down 62%. And rounding out the bottom five is Bath and Body Works, where shares have fallen more than 61%. This six-month shakeout has also created a separation of the companies that actually earn real money with steady sales from those that were long on hope but short on profits. Companies with positive trailing 12-month earnings, that means a company's earnings generated over a 12-month period on a per-share basis, are only down 18% so far this year versus a drop of 36% for companies with negative earnings. Imagine that. And as interest rates rise, value stocks which produce more consistent real earnings usually perform better over time. The monthly excess returns to the broader market for value stocks has shown a 16% positive correlation to changes in interest rates, while growth stocks show a negative 15% correlation to the broader market as rates rise. Translation, the environment we're in today and are likely to be in all year continues to favor value stocks, those slow and steady earnings generators that like to take their time. As money is moving into the value plays in the public markets, it's starting to dry up in the private markets as risk is coming off the table. Buy now, pay later giant Klarna is reportedly raising money at a valuation that is only one-seventh of what it was just last year. You remember the buy now, pay later frenzy from last year, companies like Affirm, Afterpay, and Sezzle? That fad faded fast. And the crypto winter continues to blow fiercely across the land of digital currency. Three Arrows Capital, a crypto hedge fund, filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy. That's the bankruptcy a lot of foreign-based companies tend to use. Crypto broker Voyager suspended all trading deposits and withdrawals last week, and that's never a good sign. And several other major crypto-related companies are warning of layoffs. To add insult to injury, the Securities and Exchange Commission last week rejected Grayscale Investments' application to convert its $13.5 billion Grayscale Bitcoin Trust into a spot-based Bitcoin exchange-traded fund. Longtime listeners will remember when we had Michael Sonnenschein of Grayscale Investments on the show. He and his team have been working on that for years. Speaking of years, the July 4th holiday here in the U.S. got me thinking about the early days of the public markets at the dawn of the Republic in the late 18th century. Our pal Jamie Catherwood at Investor Amnesia dug up some great stuff in his recent newsletter, including this nugget entitled Essays in the Earlier History of American Corporations by Joseph Stancliffe Davis, published by the Harvard University Press in 1917. Davis writes, In 1790, when the first census had been held and the New Republic was about to experience her first financial boom and the following panic, the population was less than 4 million people with 700,000 slaves in the United States. Agriculture was the way of life for 90% of the population. Industry was virtually non-existent. So were industrial company shares. Government bonds were the only instruments to be traded in the financial centers, mainly Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, along with Baltimore and Charleston. It would take almost a century for industrial shares to capture the essence of the securities market in the United States. The securities of the Turnpike, Canal, and Railroad Companies can be viewed as the transitory instruments from the deficiency to the abundance of American company shares. There were the middlemen in all these developments who had mediated between those who had money in their hands and a desire for speculation or contribution to the industrialization of the young country and those who were in pursuit of building railroads, production plants, etc. without sufficient capital in hand. 
As the opportunity surfaced and the desires emerged and ripened, the middlemen began to be a power that would have significant influences on the political environment as well as the economy. Me again. It didn't take long for rampant speculation to turn into chaos, and that's what happened in March and April of 1792 in what we now know as the Panic of 1792. That was a financial credit crisis brought on by the expansion of credit by the newly formed First Bank of the United States, supported by the one and only Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, and some shenanigans by speculators like William Dewar and Alexander McComb and a few other bankers and lawmakers. They attempted to drive up the price of U.S. debt securities and bank stocks, but when the bottom fell out and they defaulted on their loans, prices crashed, prompting a bank run. At the same time, the First Bank of the United States started tightening credit, which caused even more panic. The nascent United States economy was in a free fall. Banks stopped lending, companies went under, and investors were piling up losses. Hamilton was forced to take extraordinary measures, effectively printing money and sending hundreds of thousands of dollars to banks around the Northeast to make open market purchases of securities, which stabilized the market by May of that year. But during the panic of 1792, according to Davis, securities prices lost nearly a quarter of their value in just two weeks, and the securities market was only two years old at the time. If it weren't for government intervention, a.k.a. the printing of money, and the ingenue of Alexander Hamilton, the future of the American public would have looked a lot different. Here we are, 230 years later, and the double-edged sword of government's printing money is still causing market mayhem. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be a shortened trading week here in the U.S. due to the July 4th holiday. Asian and European markets were open on Monday and traded mixed to higher. And this week, the U.S. labor market will be front and center as we await the June jobs report on Friday, the JOLTS report, which is the job openings and labor turnover survey on Wednesday, and a report on private sector hiring from ADP on Thursday. The U.S. labor market has added an average of more than 400,000 jobs for 12 straight months, but still remains tight in some sectors, including trucking, warehousing, and leisure and hospitality. Other sectors, however, are softening, like retail and tech. June could be the month that U.S. employers started cooling their hiring plans as they batten the hatches to prepare for a potential recession. Believe it or not, we still have a few earnings reports to button up from last quarter, including results from Levi Strauss. There may be nothing more American than a pair of new blue jeans, but they're kind of discretionary since most people like theirs faded and broken in. If consumers are pulling back, Levi Strauss will feel it around the waist. Shares of the old American company are down 35% so far this year. Global automakers will report their June sales this week as well, and we know that sales have been slowing as borrowing costs rise and inventory remains tight. Tesla sales and forecasts will be particularly important to watch since CEO Elon Musk said he has a super bad feeling about the economy. We'll also be paying attention to Ford sales and especially what the automaker says about sales of the all-new electric F-150 Lightnings. Hey, in case you missed it, there was a significant rebalancing amid the Russell indexes last week. Every fourth Friday of June, the popular Russell indexes are reconstituted. The decks are reshuffled, so to speak, as a few new companies are added in while a few other companies are taken out. Among this year's rebalance, one of the most significant changes was the shift of Meta, Netflix, PayPal, and Zoom from the Russell 1000 Growth Index into the Russell 1000 Value Index. This is important because a lot of index investors simply buy and hold popular indexes based on their investment criteria and factors, so we should know what's inside the indexes we own. But also note that a few of the strongest growth companies we've ever known, Meta, formerly known as Facebook, Netflix, and PayPal, are now considered value stocks by one of the most important index creators out there. That is a big change. 
We know the narrative well. The worst first half of the year for the U.S. stock market since 1970, the drumbeat around a recession getting louder by the day, geopolitical uncertainty in all corners of the globe, a central bank struggling to hold the wheel as it tries to engineer a soft landing. This is the state of play as we dive into the second half of the year, and it's time to get our playbooks ready. Mike Wilson is the chief U.S. equity strategist and chief investment officer for Morgan Stanley and chair of its Global Investment Committee. Mike and his team have been among the more prescient market watchers and forecasters among institutional investors calling this bear market way back at the beginning of the year, and their forecasts call for more bear encounters this summer. We're going to need a wildlife expert to keep us safe out there this summer. We're pleased to welcome Mike Wilson on The Express this week. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it. You and your team have laid out several scenarios for the back half of the year and how that's going to play out. Let's start with your base case and what seems most likely given what we know now. Yeah, I mean, the, the base case is quickly turning into the bear case, unfortunately, because as you mentioned, the risk of recession is increasing, but we're still holding out hope that we can avoid a recession. It's probably a 60% chance, but you know that's growing. Uh, the recession chance is going up from 40% plus. So in that base case, we assume a soft landing, right? That the Fed can orchestrate a extension of the business cycle, if you want to call it that. But the problem is, is that we still see earnings risk, even in that outcome, because there's still payback and demand. There was over-earning by good portions of the economy. So even though the economy may be okay and hold together, the earnings power of the market may come down because you have a shift from goods to services, which is much less accretive to say S&P 500 earnings. You have margin pressure now. So even though you know growth is good at the top line, companies are having a harder time bringing it to the bottom line because the costs are now increasing faster than the end price point. So in that scenario, we think there's about five to seven percent downside to forward earnings estimates, which are currently about 240 on the S&P 500. So call it 225, 230. And then, you know, you know, unfortunately, the multiple really isn't going to get much relief because in the soft landing scenario, right, rates don't come down, right? You know, so rates will stay elevated, probably closer to 3%, maybe even higher as the economy continues to grow and the Fed continues to raise rates. And so the multiple, you know, you really can't get much about 14 and a half, 15 times earnings, and that's 3,400 sometime this fall. Now, the good news is from there, you'll grow again, and then, you know, earnings will drive the market higher. In the bear case, the, the recessionary outcome, which is growing in chance, the earnings risk is obviously greater. It's probably closer to 20%. And now you're talking about $195, $200 in earnings power, kind of on a forward 12-month basis. And the multiple still isn't much, isn't going to be much higher because when you go into recession, right, the equity risk premium usually blows out because when you go into recession, you don't know if you're going to come out. So that's the trick. And I would say that the downside target in that recession scenario is about 3000 before you can recover. Now, this may sound crazy to you, but the bull case is that the recession comes sooner. Do you actually just have it, get it over with, and then the market will be able to look forward. You don't do any structural damage. You can kind of get the labor market back where it needs to be. Businesses will quickly adjust and the market will like that. And then you can actually grow forward from there. So so it's it's a very uh, interesting setup. It's going to happen fast. You know, this whole cycle has been very quick. And I suspect we're going to know the answer to a lot of this probably by October. The bull case sounds great. It would be great to get this over with quickly. At the same time, you know this well. Things have changed, right? We have an environment where the Fed is raising rates. We have persistently high inflation. And we're just not going to get the kind of growth that we've gotten in some of the big, especially mega tech firms that have been the drivers of growth over the last decade or so. So things are never going back to the way they were. But what kind of a growth scenario could that be at best? 
Yeah, it'll be a more balanced uh, growth, though. You know, think about it this way. I mean, yeah, we've had these you know great uh, tech companies who have you know great margins, generating a lot of profit growth, but it's been very narrow. It's kind of like the the one percent economy. You know, we talk about the one percent economy for individuals. It's been the one percent economy for corporates too. So what I would hope is as you come through this next downturn, whatever it is, that you're going to see actually a more synchronous recovery globally, right? Think about post-COVID. We haven't really had a recovery outside the U.S. yet to speak of at all. Uh, we haven't had what I would call real investment in real things for a long time. And this cycle clearly is embodying the need that's showing us that we need to invest in real things that can drive higher productivity. So I'm actually quite optimistic if we can get through this adjustment period, that we're going to have higher nominal GDP growth globally. And then, you know, obviously multinational companies that are levered to that, which are tech and non-tech, can actually participate in that. And you can actually generate some pretty good earnings growth. Well, I've heard you talk about the need to be looking for companies now that have strong cash flow, dependable revenue, and the ability to bring that cash flow to the bottom line. Look at the fundamentals, basic fundamentals here, block and tackling uh, good, solid companies. Is that right? That's exactly right. What market's paying for now is what we call operational efficiency. And it's a nice way of saying they're paying up for companies who can deliver on the cash, cash flow and earnings. So the days of like growth at any price or profitless growth, that's kind of over. Like we're not going back to that world. Now, that doesn't mean that every growth company or tech company is doomed. It does mean, however, growth companies or tech companies or that don't generate profits or have a path to profitability in a reasonable time frame. I think those types of investments are going to be challenged and obviously have been challenged. And you know, I would tell the listeners here that if you own some of that stuff still, I would, you know, I'd probably be looking to sell it on rallies because this is the kind of thing that could be an underperformer for 10 years or it may even go away. So that's, a, that's the biggest change that I see uh, in the landscape. It's going to be more balanced. Growth companies can do just fine, but you better make sure they have profitability or at least a path to profitability. Well, you counsel, you and your team, you counsel institutional investors about how to allocate capital. They have to do this. This is what they do for a living to make money. But for individual investors, like a lot of our listeners who are just trying to protect and grow their wealth, what do you advise as we're facing sort of this challenging next few months and potentially next few years? This is a different cycle altogether than a lot of folks have ever experienced. Absolutely. So you know, we had this narrative at the beginning of the year. We called it uh, fire and ice. And the reason we've had such a tough time this year is because you have the Fed and central banks tightening policy into a slowdown. It's actually unprecedented in some ways. It's very rare to see monetary policy being tightened into a, a, an economy that's slowing or profit cycle that's slowing. But that's where we found ourselves because we had gotten inflation out of control, so they didn't really have a choice. So the first half of the year was bad for everything. All financial assets suffered because it was this hammer coming down from the Fed and other central banks. And you know, tightening financial conditions is bad for stocks, it's bad for bonds, it's bad for even commodities to some degree, which is not doing well recently, real estate, you name it. The second half of the year is going to be all about growth. The Fed has done their job now. They've already told you that what they're going to do. That's why mortgages are so high now, why housing is slowing. So the second half of the year is going to be about growth slowing. Now, in that environment, bonds actually do quite well. And I sense, you know, even in our own network, uh, retail investors and asset owners in general have started to really shun bonds because inflation was moving up. And that was the right decision. The problem is, is it went too far. You know, for all the, you know, complaining or, you know, talk about how bad stocks have been the first half of this year. Bonds have actually been worse relative to their history. 
I saw a stat today. It was the worst year for Bob, first half of the year since 1865. Okay. So, you know, that's basically the worst ever. So I don't hear many people saying, no, it's time to buy bonds. Uh, but that's what you should be. Like, if you have cash or you have maybe a little bit too much equity risk, you know, buying long duration treasuries here is actually a really good way to hedge your portfolio as we go into this growth slowdown and potential recession. And that's a trade because, you know, you want to eventually then buy stocks again when they get cheap enough. But in the next three to four or six months, that could be a really good idea for people. You have to know when to make that rotation out again, which is why you got to listen to the signals, which is what you and your team do. So I love the fire and ice metaphor. I don't know if you're referring to Pat Benatar's hit song or Robert Frost's poem, but both apply in this case. So I was going to ask, though, if we need to reset our portfolios with reasonable and practical expectations for the next three to five years, what are some basic rules we need to adhere to? And what are some basic things we just need to accept as investors? Is as the days of 8 to 10% average returns on the S&P 500, are those over for the near term? I think there's a couple things. Um, number one, we are kind of leaving Kansas, Toto, in one way, which is that your inflation is here to, to stay. Now, that doesn't mean 10% inflation is here to stay. What it means is that we're not going to be at 1% to 2% and an environment where interest rates are continually coming down and the Fed is in a position to always bail us out. Okay, So you have to act more like an adult. And you know we're not going to get these valuations to get out of control. So valuations are never going to get to where they were again if there's this underlying inflationary pressure that forces the Fed to be quick-handed when inflation gets a little bit out of hand like it is now, then they're going to continue to do that. It also means we're likely to have more frequent recessions. Now, when you say the word recession, it conjures up all these terrible feelings because in the last 30 years, every recession has ended with a financial crisis. But that's because you had 10-year cycles where you you end up having too much malinvestment and it blows up in the end. If you have recessions every three or four years, it can actually be quite helpful. It cleanses. It's like you know, it's like cleaning your room. If you do it every week, it's not so bad. If you wait, you know, six months, it's going to be a problem. So, what I would encourage clients to do is not get too beholden to this long-term buy and hold. You're going to have to be a little bit more tactical around these ideas of saying, okay, when when asset prices get cheap in stocks, I'm going to really get aggressive. But then watch it closely. And when they get ridiculously expensive, like they did last year, we all knew it was ridiculously expensive, but nobody wanted to sell because it was like, well, I don't want to miss anything. You're going to have to be more disciplined. Now, maybe that requires you to, you know, have an advisor, you know, read more about this, you know, follow it more closely. But if you do that, you can absolutely generate 8 to 10% returns in a portfolio. If you don't do that, then yes, it's probably going to be more like 5 to 6, which isn't the end of the world. But if you want to generate outsized returns, you're going to have to be a bit more tactical. And there's always a good time to have a financial advisor, good time to also understand the fundamentals here and see what's going on in the market. Because you're right, we got we, we to act like grownups. The punch bowl has been taken away. Whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, we're out of Kansas. Absolutely. A few months ago, everyone was talking about a super cycle for commodities. Obviously, crude oil prices have been spiking. They're coming down. They've come down quite a bit. But you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine had something to do with that. But we also saw spikes across the commodity basket there. A lot of that has come off. Is that demand destruction because of inflation or the fact that, or the fear that we're heading into a recession? And that's why we've seen some leveling of prices, especially in copper and a lot of those important metals. There's no doubt that the base metals are directly tied to what we think is a slowdown in the global economy, right? We see it in the data, whether it's uh, export orders, you know, consumption, and there is demand destruction going on. There's also 
payback and demand and a lot of different things. You know, we, we overconsumed quite a bit, particularly in the United States, in that utilized, there was a lot of double ordering that was going on, hoarding of commodities. And now, you know, you know commodities are classic price destructive asset classes, meaning the cure for higher commodity prices is higher commodity prices. Yep, higher prices. And that's what we got. So, and they're very forward thinking. And so I do think that the signal that we're getting from, I mean, from the base metals is pretty obvious. Oil is trickier because you would think, well, you know, I don't know there was all this oil. What that tells me is that the oil in Russia is definitely getting into the market 100%. Like we're not as short on oil perhaps as many people think. I think we're short on refining capacity in many ways, but I'm not sure we're short on crude as much as people think, assuming that the oil that's you know being pumped in Russia is actually getting into the global economy and being consumed, which I think it is, which is also being dictated by the current account surplus that we're seeing in, in Russia and the ruble is going through the roof. So clearly they're selling it to somebody. Give us your hot take. What's the one thing people aren't really talking about right now as it relates to the capital markets that could be a big factor through the rest of the, the balance of 2022 or even into 2023? What's the thing that you think needs more attention than it's getting? Well, I don't think it's one thing, but I, I do want to give the listeners like a little preview of something to think about because you know we, we tend to think a little further in the future than maybe other strategists who are willing to go out there and 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 put our neck on the line. And we won't be right necessarily, but we think this makes a lot of sense, which is I hear a lot out there that this is the 1970s, okay, and that we're going to have a stagflationary environment if we go into a recession. And we think it's nothing further from the truth. We, we think it's really the 1940s. And the, and the main differentiating feature to think about, which everybody understands, is that the 70s was really a cost push inflation. We had a shortage of supply and a lot of different things, labor, commodities, various other you know, components. And that's why we had a cost. That's why inflation was so sticky. What we have today is demand pull. We had too much demand. We overstimulated demand. And then we had logistical constraints as opposed to supply constraints. And those logistical constraints are now getting fixed. So I think you need to think really hard and we get to this fall when if if we're you know we're moving into a recession and markets really sell off, I can guarantee you the boo birds are gonna be out in full glory talking about stagflation and how we're you know really screwed. And what I would like people to just keep an open mind to is no, we're in a boom bust environment. And I can assure you that what follows a bust is a boom, just like what follows a boom is a bust. So just keep your mind open to that idea. And in the darkest hour this fall, you know, we'll be pretty vocal about it. But you know, I think you need to be open-minded to the idea that inflation is a backward-looking statistic. And that if you look forward, if you actually have a recession, inflation is going to be quite low next year. It's actually deflationary in a lot of areas where we overconsumed and now there's excess inventory. Well, great point. And I love the analogy to the, to the 40s. But it also, to the point you made earlier, a lot of these cycles seem to be happening a lot faster than they used to, right? These are compressed time periods. Obviously, the, the quick recession in, in the spring of 2020, the quick recovery from that, you know, some of the fastest on record. Are we just going to be headed for faster and faster cycles going forward and have to deal with that as investors? Yeah, I mean, that was the title of our report a year and a half ago, which is, you know, hotter but shorter cycles. And it lines up exactly with the 40s again. So if I, if I told you from 1945 to 1961, we had five recessions, it might surprise you, because during that period, it was, a, it was the glory days for the United States. And we actually had a, a very good stock market, terrible bond market, but a very good stock market. So in other, in other words, the point being is that boom busts don't have to be bad investment environments. And they don't have to necessarily be bad for 
average people that if they know, you know, they can job hop and they can get wage increases and they can manage their lives. But you have to have a little bit of a foresight on that and understand what's going on. Yeah, great point. Great point. All right, we're going to go out on this. We'd like to ask our, our guests, especially those who are black belt investors, for their favorite investing term. We're a site, as in, as you know, Investopedia built on our investing terms. What's the one that just sings to your heart, the one that just makes you happy whenever you're here or whenever you get to use it? The, the thing that I think people overlook all the time, because you know people watch media and they read, and it's always about the scoreboard. It's like, well, it was up, so I was right. That's not a good way to invest. It's always about risk reward. That's like saying, well, I went out Friday night, I took all these chances and I got home safely. Yeah, well, you got lucky. You've got to be really disciplined about risk. Re- understanding risk reward will keep you out of trouble. And most importantly, you'll be adding risk at the right time. Great one. You're the first one to bring up risk reward, but probably one of the most important for investors out there of any age. Mike Wilson, the Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and Chief Investment Officer for Morgan Stanley. Thanks so much for joining The Express. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's terminology time, time for us to smarten up with the investing term we need to know this week. We like Mike Wilson's favorite term, risk and reward, but Mike brought up another term that got me searching, the Fed's terminal rate. That term doesn't get used a lot these days, but it's important to understand as central banks plan to raise interest rates throughout the year. According to my favorite website, the terminal rate is what economists call the natural or neutral interest rate. It's the rate that is consistent with full employment and capacity utilization and stable prices. Those are the Federal Reserve's mandates. Asset managers and borrowers have to take the expected central bank's terminal rates into account in planning investment and funding decisions. In the United States, Fed fund futures are pricing in over 300 basis points of rate hikes, implying a terminal rate of around 3.9% by mid-2023. That's up from around 3% at the start of June. For the European Central Bank, money markets now price in around 290 basis points of hikes to put rates at around 2.4% by July of 2023. This compares with a rise of 1.5% by early 2024, priced at the start of June. Those are big changes, and they are a stark contrast with May when traders had cut estimates on where terminal rates would peak. Investors thought inflation had peaked. We were wrong. And investment banks have been ramping up their forecasts for terminal rates. Here in the United States, Deutsche Bank economists recently raised their Fed terminal rate forecast to 4.125% by mid-2023, while Morgan Stanley said that if the current inflation backdrop starts to look like it did in the early 1980s, markets could price in a terminal rate of between 4.5% and 5%. I'm glad Mike brought that up. We're going to be sending him a pair of our world-class famous socks for joining the show this week. We're going to let President Harry Truman take us out this week. Here's President Truman addressing the American people in Congress in November of 1947. The president was asking Congress for more help to bring down prices and support an aid package to American allies in Europe who were suffering from hunger and cold in the wake of the Second World War. The inflation rate in the U.S. at that time, 14.3%. Truman wanted Congress to re-implement price controls to bring down prices, especially food prices. That never worked out. Here's the president. Inflation must be stopped before it is too late. It is within our power to stop it. Our economy is basically sound. It has been immensely strengthened in recent years. The average buying power of our people today is 40% higher than it was in 1929. But we're losing some of this gain as rising prices pull away from income. As rising prices pull away from income. Sound familiar? What goes around comes around in capitalism sometimes. Special thanks to Mike Wilson for climbing aboard the Express this week and to all of you for listening, of course. 
We're going to post the transcript to our conversation and links to the research in the show notes wherever you listen to The Express and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Halftime is over. Let's go. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.